Welcome to this special live edition of the Seneca Podcast, coming to you today from Columbia University in New York City. Let's hear you lions roar. All right. Okay. The Seneca Podcast is produced in proud partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the absolute best way to keep on top of all the news from China through our newsletter, our app, and of course at the website SupChina.com. It's an absolutely sumptuous feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, and joining me is the first gene-edited podcast host ever to have been born, uh, creation of Chinese scientists. His name is Jeremy Goldcorn, and he's come all the way here from Coldcorn Holler in Nashville, Tennessee. Jeremy, greet the people, would you? Hey, people. Thank you very much. That was a particularly bad Kaiser joke. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I am a little disturbed by uh, having this live streamed on YouTube because, uh, as many people tell me, I have a face for radio, but I will try to... It's okay. It's mostly (laughs) obscured. Yeah, I'll hide behind this thing. Um, Let us get going because I'm eager to commemorate the 40th anniversary of the beginning of China's reform and opening up period, which kicked off with the third plenary session of the 11th Party Congress in December 1978, 40 years ago this very month. Woohoo! Happy birthday. Yeah, happy reform birthday. And reform opening. and opening. Day. It really right. set China on the path to the relative prosperity, regional and global influence, and substantial military capabilities that the country now possesses. It's difficult, at least for me, to convey succinctly uh, just just the sheer magnitude of the change that's happened in these last 40 years. I think people, at least in, in my generation, people who were maybe born up to a decade before me are maybe the people who know it best because they have the experience of, of China during the Cultural Revolution. They still you know, have a, a living memory of that. And they have not only participated in, but really felt the full impact of reform and opening. Uh, they are, you know, a lot of them still working today. Um, and they're, they're definitely, yeah, young enough to have, have been full participants in the transformation. Uh, I would urge you all to, I think, I mean, it's, it's something that I'm really down with, but this idea of thinking your way into the heads of Chinese people who have experienced this, uh, what it's been like to to undergo change on this scale, and you know, gain an appreciation for how this is going to affect the way you think, uh, the way it's going to affect your assumptions about the world you live in, about you know the the very idea of of possibility, uh, your relationship with the state, your relationship with technology, your relationship with 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 you know modernity, with the West, uh, with all all these things. Uh, I, I first visited China in 1981, and that was just a few years after, of course, you know, the events of, of December of 78. And again, I mean, I can't find the words to describe what I've seen. Um, I mean, it's almost like it went from black and white to, to technicolor. I mean, and now it's, it's almost sort of high definition, like ultra HD 4K or whatever. Uh, it's, it's insane how much it's changed, but it, it almost feels like that scene in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy lands in Oz when you think about the change. Uh, Jeremy, I mean, you must get asked questions all the time. I mean, like, what, what is your favorite sort of go-to um, fact that illustrates the, 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 the amount of change? I think it's um, urbanization. Uh, yeah. My first job in China, they put me up in a worker's dormitory in the countryside, way outside of Beijing. And there was, it was the, uh, at the time the Beijing Economic Technological Development Zone. And there were a few factories and right next to our dormitory, uh, which had no hot showers, um, or private toilets, 
right next to the dormitory were farmers. That factory building, that dormitory building, uh, is no longer there, and it's somewhere inside the Fifth Ring Road. (laughs) (laughs) And, I mean, in terms of figures, in 1978, China had only about 20% of its population in cities. Um, a few years ago, uh, it went over half, and now uh, official stats indicate it's about 57% of the population live in cities. Wow. That's expected to climb to 70% by 2030, which is very soon. We are talking about hundreds of millions of people who have moved from the countryside to the cities in the last four decades, yeah. the fastest periods of urbanization happening uh, in the 1990s. Yeah, for me, I guess it's just good old GDP per capita. I mean, if you go back to 1978, per capita GDP was only $175 in China, 175 And today it's, you know, I think there's the different estimates, but somewhere in the ballpark of $8,600. If you take those numbers, that's 49 times. That's 49 times. And you, you just, just got to remember, I mean, somebody who, who was working, who, who began their working life, age 18 or whatever, in 1978, is probably still working today. I mean, at 58, they're not quite through retirement yet. Uh, that's one biological generation, one work, working life uh, that this has all happened in. It's just really astonishing. Many of my Chinese friends my age, um, of a certain age, remember being hungry as kids, remember the biggest treat in the world being a piece of mantou, like a really plain northern steamed bun with a little bit of sugar on top. You know, China's obviously made tremendous strides in areas like poverty alleviation, infrastructure. Um, it has a ro- robust innovation ecosystem. Even just a few years ago, people said that Chinese engineers couldn't innovate and right. no longer hear that kind of talk. China produces astonishingly good products. Um, you know, my favorite product to talk about is my DJ, DJ, DJI drone, which is just <laughs> a thing of wonder and a completely Chinese-made products. Um you know, we can point to world-class athletes, exquisite cuisine, of yeah, course, of course yeah. <laughs> relatively low levels of violent crime, and many other uh, achievements. But with this, you've also had, you know, massive income inequality and wealth inequality. You've had, you know, dangerous demographic swells right now where, you know, China is growing old before it's getting rich. And, of course, a lot of this is the result of the one-child policy. You're going to have just a massive pension and healthcare burden. Uh, you've got, of course, very serious environmental degradation, pollution, not just to the air and soil and water, but also, you know, serious greenhouse gas emissions, which affect all of us. Uh, you've got uh, soil erosion and desertification and, and the, the extinction or near extinction of many, many species as well. Uh, and Chinese society, too, has changed, I think, just in this last 40 years. I mean, it went from a quite, I mean, an unarguably high trust society for whatever reason to, uh, I think, what I think we all recognize as a very low trust society today. Many would say that Chinese society has become morally quite unmoored. I mean, it's been, there's this sort of, you know, hyper competitive uh, focus on material aspirations and, you know, it's quite pugnacious and impatient and there's this kind of suffused with this, this ethos of brutal, amoral pragmatism, which I think is, is a very unfortunate. Uh, its cities may appear to be quite cosmopolitan on the surface, but scratch it. And, you know, there are certainly stirrings of quite assertive nativism in some parts. Uh, it's quite unmistakable. And, of course, China under Xi Jinping has grown more oppressive. China's civil society actors like lawyers and journalists have been imprisoned and silenced. Xinjiang has become a surveillance state where perhaps a million or more people are detained in facilities that precisely meet the definition of concentration camp. 
Nonetheless, for most Chinese people, life has never been so good as it has been in the last decade or so. The poor developing country I arrived in in 1995 was already significantly better off than it was just a decade previously. In 1995, most Chinese people stereotyped foreigners as being rich. Today, my friends in Beijing joke about how poor the foreigners they know are. <laughs> um, so true. That was so me. <laughs> today, forgive us for the long preamble, but we thought it worth it. For commemorating the 40th anniversary of these monumental reforms that brought us here, about the good and the bad,、uh, about the story's protagonists and all that they had to overcome, because we often forget that there was quite a bit of resistance to reform. Maoism did not just disappear overnight. We want to also restore certain individuals、uh, who were really vital to the process of reform and opening to their proper place in history.、Uh, some of them have already been airbrushed quite out of the official narrative.、Uh, Hu Yaobang is still acknowledged, if only grudgingly.、Uh, Zhao Ziyang, who was general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party at the time of whose death. Uh, which was, of course, what sparked the Tiananmen demonstrations,、uh, has been photoshopped right out of the family album, and、uh, even Deng Xiaoping himself now looks like he's fading from his rightful place. He's being sort of elbowed out of the center. So, at last, who better to talk to us about this than the gentleman sitting between us, Jude Blanchet, who is one of、uh, both Kaiser and my favorite observers of contemporary China politics. Jude is a senior advisor and China practice lead for the Crumpton Group. Based, uh, based, based in Washington D.C.、Um, <laughs> something about Washington.、Um, we're delighted that he could join us.、Uh, come up to New York to join us for this. Jude, welcome back to Seneca, and let's hear it for Jude, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Jude,、uh, just now, Jeremy and I were dropping a couple of stats to give a sense of you know what it's been like to witness this you know forty year transition.、Uh, what are some of the favorites that you like to to pull out and and,、uh, and drop and ask to?、Um, I, I guess recently one that's been coming to mind often as we sort of head into this period of more intense strategic competition,、uh, a cold war, I guess is what most people are calling it now, between the U.S. and China is the fact that you know in nineteen eighty. Um, we had about six billion dollars of trade between the U.S. and, and China, and now we have upwards of seven、uh, hundred billion. Wow!、Um, so that's a particularly neoliberal way of looking at a relationship, but nonetheless, I think it's just one that hints at how mutually beneficial the relationship has been between the two countries. And, and nowadays, we often just look at the costs of the relationship or the tensions of the relationship, but. Hopefully, as we talk about today, I think it's worth it's worth dwelling on just how extraordinary important both countries、uh, have been been for each other. But it's only advantaged China, don't you see? It's zero something.、Um, okay, enough of that. China. <laughs> There is a, a kind of a simplified narrative、uh, about the history of reform and opening up that many people, both inside and outside of China, have come to accept. Can you tell us the broad outlines of that narrative, and then perhaps? The major things it's missing. Yeah, and, I, and I, before I give this flat narrative, I'd say it's one that,、uh, up until pretty recently, was my narrative for for reform and opening. It, it's one of the few areas where the the sort of、uh, truncated version that we tell ourselves here in the U.S.、Uh, totally overlaps with the Communist Party's own own narrative, and and in its most you know its hallmark card version. Uh, it goes that after the the death of Mao Zedong in 1976 and and the chaos of the Cultural Revolution, China, looking for normalcy and looking to pursue a modernization agenda, brought forward Deng Xiaoping out of his third purge, 
and he launched uh, with a with a, a group of allies this extraordinary reform and opening. It started December 11th, uh, 1978, at the third plenum. That's when it officially started with a bang, and it was upward and onward for most of the 1980s. <clears throat> it, it unleashed this uh, flourishing of culture of this this cathartic discussion about the pain of the Mao era. And it reached a bit of a stumbling block in 1989, uh, June 4th, uh, but rewrited itself uh, in 1992 when Deng launched the the Southern Tour. And since then, this has been essentially 40 years of upward and onward progress with that one significant, but that one pronounced dip in in 1989. And what are the major things that it leaves out? To, to me, that narrative is is true in many ways, but it's mm-hmm. like saying that the story of, of America is the story of, of democracy and the increasing of the franchise. That's, that's true in many ways, um, but it leaves out all the interesting stuff. It leaves out all of the ways in which that narrative doesn't, doesn't, doesn't live up to reality. It leaves out how much still needs to be done. Most importantly, it leaves out all of the individuals who were there for that struggle, uh, both on the, the right side and the wrong side there. And so to me, when I look at reform and opening, but particularly the 1980s, which was a decade I think many of us, or speak for myself, I skipped over in many ways when I was learning about China, just how particularly momentous and how much volatility was in the reform agenda. Mm. And that when you go from that macro narrative down to the micro and look at it almost on a yearly basis, you see this grand struggle playing out in China. Um, between those who are looking to protect or maintain some of the some of the core elements of, of the Maoist period, those who are using ideology as a as a cudgel protect to protect their own positions in power, um, you look at this uh, just complex integration with the outside world, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And so, to me, it's really one of the most extraordinary stories. Much more interesting than the sort of linear narrative of upward and onward, you know, 1978 and all that. And I think it's one that on this anniversary, we, we, as we're doing today, we, we do well to reflect on it because missing a lot of those key details is, I think, one of the reasons this discussion of how we got China wrong, which I, we can talk about that later. I find that sort of obnoxious. But nonetheless, that discussion of where we got it wrong, I think a lot of those those breadcrumbs are in the in the details of this of this grander struggle that many of us, myself, uh, essentially passed over as we mm. were learning mm. about China. One of the things we haven't gotten wrong is that we've usually cast Deng Xiaoping as you know in the role of the diminutive architect of the whole reform agenda. Uh, what was it about Deng that that made him able to do what he did in the time that he did? Did he? create that moment in time or did that moment in time create him? I mean, maybe that's too historiographic a question, but what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, what an extraordinary figure he was and one in which, again, we have a particularly flat narrative of him as the the grand architect of of reform, um, which is, again, in many ways true. I think without Deng Xiaoping, it's, it's arguable China would have taken a radically different uh, trajectory towards modernization, and and one I think m- might not have ended up so well for for China and and for the rest of the world. Um, but the the complexity of, of Deng Xiaoping make him uh, a, a character who stands at the center of of this unfolding drama, where he comes back from his third purge uh, after the death of Mao with an extraordinary amount of uh, prestige, an extraordinary amount of loyalty 
based on his long career, both in the state bureaucracy, but crucially in the military, where he essentially, you know, we think of Dung as this sort of elder, you know, chain smoking, you know, dwarf like figure who, who's, <laughs> you know, sitting in Zhongnan High, spitting into a spittoon and calling the shots. Who called him a chain-smoking communist dwarf? Was it uh, an American (laughs) senator? Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't, crucially. Um, But, you know, he was, like a lot of of that generation, that long march generation, he'd cut his teeth in in essentially fighting wars for, for the Communist Party. And it was his work in the military and his work at the center of the state apparatus under under Mao Zedong that allowed him to come into power and essentially control a level of loyalty that no one else was able to, in those initial years after Mao's death, hold a candle to. He he was wise in the sort of the way that he handled the legacy of Mao, did not pursue a Khrushchev-like kind of demaoification, right? In, in, in 56, of course, he had that secret speech by Khrushchev where he de-Stalinized, right? That didn't happen in China. And what's your assessment of, of how well he played that? I mean, did he understand uh, the need to preserve Mao's legacy? Or do you think this was a, a colossal foregone opportunity? Yeah, maybe that's a, actually a good place to start before we get to things like the third plenum is just how central the question of Mao Zedong and Mao Zedong's legacy was, not only for the first few years, well, still to today, um, but really a crucial political issue um, certainly up until the up until the uh, uh, the third plenum in 1978 but especially through I think we'll talk about in a minute the the official historical resolution in June 1981 um, but after Mao died uh, everyone whether you wanted what would later we'd call the reformers under the the Deng Xiaoping wing or the sort of conservatives everyone was looking to co-opt the legacy of of Mao Zedong um, no one was trying to run away from Mao in those initial years, which, again, is the first challenge, at least to our narrative of Mao dies and everybody looks at how can we run away from the ghost of Mao. It just didn't happen. Mm. Um, there was this there was absolutely this catharsis of, of Mao's death. And, I, you know, you talk to folks who remember the day when they heard the announcement at 4 p.m., uh, September 18th, 1976, where they were when, you know, in broad when, in loudspeakers across the country, they they made the official announcement of Mao's death and there were absolutely tears of happiness and relief, but but also tears of, of, of sadness and, and uh, a sense of, uh, of, you know, being distraught about the, the direction of the country. Um, but but Deng Xiaoping had been in Moscow in, 19, in 1956 when Khrushchev had given his crucial speech uh, to the 20th Party Congress in which he denounced the crimes of Stalin. And that wasn't because Khrushchev was some historical liberal. Um, but because he recognized the political importance of, of in a sense, burying Stalin uh, to clear the way for his own path to power. Um, Deng was there and and the party, the Communist Party of China, saw what happened when you de-Stalinified, um, how it set off political ripples and a sense of uncertainty in, in the political elite and it unleashed ankle biting. If anyone's seen the movie The Death of Stalin, so if you have it, it's amazing. <laughs> Um, it's it's Steve a comedy, Buscemi. but it captures some of the uncertainty that that was let loose as this pressure valve of of Stalin's legacy was was opened up for public castigation. So Deng was there in Moscow, and so very deftly he recognized how if China got rid of Mao Zedong, it got rid of it got rid of the Communist Party, and it got rid of Deng, Deng Xiaoping's position in power. 
And so in 19, uh, 19, late 1979, they ask for, Deng asks for, we need a, a summation of, of China's past. And this is a, a, a tactic the party had used before, used in 1945, a sort of summing up of where we are. Not in the sense because they wanted to open up the, the history books for everyone to have a, a robust discourse, but they thought we all got to get on the same page. And the Mao era was um, so so chaotic that there's so many different opinions. People want to settle scores, whatnot, that we all need to coalesce around one opinion. And there's a great document, um, which you can find uh, in Deng's Collected Works, where it's him commenting on the successive drafts of what was going to become this 1981 historical resolution. And throughout the document, you see him over and over again saying to the people writing it, you got to ease off Mao. You're being too critical of Mao, and if Mao comes down, we all come down. Again, informed by looking at the at the experience of uh, of, of the Soviet Union, and this this culminated in in that histor- historical resolution of um, uh, 1981. Questions on certain elements of the party's history since its founding, or, or something like that. Some really witty, concise title, <laughs> um, and that's the one where people commonly say that the party decided that Mao was 70 percent right and and 30 percent wrong. That was never said in that document or officially anywhere. That was a, a shorthand formulation um, that was used by party officials, but never in any official. Uh, in, in a official way, but nonetheless, that nicely captured, I think, what the party was trying to do. Saying absolutely, there were some, there were some, uh, um, there were some mistakes made by Mao, especially in his the later year period. Um, but on the whole, without Mao Zedong, there would be no new China. Uh, that was a very long discursion on a very no, that's, concise that's question. But but yes, I think for for Deng and for all the earlier leaders, that crucial question of what do we do with Mao uh, was absolutely paramount. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang and their contributions to economic reforms before their respective downfalls. Yeah, it's two really fascinating characters who, as, as you guys were saying at the outset, um, don't get much by way of coverage in the official narrative of reform and opening, certainly not from, from the Communist Party. But if we think about Deng Xiaoping coming to power, really what we mean is he successfully created a, a coalition of powerful figures within the party who were going to support him as he made his challenge to Hua Guofeng, who we can talk about in a minute, but was Mao's chosen successor to, mm-hmm. to lead China. And as a part of this this coalition were these two actually extraordinary individuals, uh, Zhao Ziyang, who was the uh, party secretary of Sichuan province, and Hu Yaobang, who I don't know what any of you were doing when you were 12, but he joined his first revolution when he was 12 and, and ran away from home and joined the Communist Party when he was 14. Um, and was one of the youngest members on on the the famed Long March. So again, like Deng, had an extraordinary amount of credibility based on being part of that revolutionary generation who literally fought and bled uh, for the creation of of the People's Republic of China, and was a crucial figure uh, as Deng's coming to power in pushing a a project of uh, rehabilitation of signaling to officials who had been persecuted by Mao that we, we were going to bring you in from the cold and that this was a signal to uh, what would soon become a, a, the technocrats, but but also older officials like Xi Jinping's father mm-hmm. that were done with that that chaotic period and it's time to come serve the nation again. And Hu Yabang was absolutely crucial to that, what's called pingfan, mm-hmm. uh, rehabilitation. 
Um, it was partly a, a political project. It made sense to do that. That was a way to bring in a group of people loyal to you rather than loyal to, to Hua Guofeng. But I think it was an absolutely a genuine understanding that if China was to actually modernize and emerge from the Maoist period, you had to have a, a cadre of capable, experienced leaders who were pragmatic um, and were very different from the sort of more extreme ideologues who had been running China for for much of the Cultural Revolution. Is it true that Hu Yaobang actually advocated, I mean, he took his westernization a little far, supposedly, well, he, he got everyone to give up the Mao suits for, for Western-style suits, no problem with that, but he wanted Chinese people to give up chopsticks, I hear. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that, that's... Um, yeah, he's the first official to, to, to really stop wearing the, the Mao suit and to start yeah, wearing a yeah. suit and tie, which in it now seems quite ordinary, but then was rather extraordinary and, and was known for, I think you'd say, uh, uh, feeling free to make comments off the cuff. And, and one of them that he made is he saw how um, shared food, he thought, was leading to some, some health-related issues and that China needed to move towards having your own plate with your own food and a knife and fork. Huh. Um, but of course... Symbolically and otherwise, chopsticks are incredibly important. And to say that um, was feeding into some some what they call conservative concerns about China opening up to the world was really going to lead to the abolishment of Chinese culture, the importation of capitalism. And remarks like this by Hu Yaobang, and he had many of them, uh, would in retrospect be one of the real reasons why he, he uh, aroused such animosity by a lot of senior party officials. Wow. Interesting. How about Zhao Ziyang? Yeah, so um, more sensitive today than Hu Yaobang. Hu Yaobang has been for uh, a mini rehabilitation. They just put yeah. up a statue of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Last correct. Um, at the uh, 100th anniversary of his birth, uh, Xi Jinping made remarks. Again, crucially, Xi, uh, Hu Yaobang was really influential in bringing Xi Jongshun, who was Xi Jinping's father, back into the fold after his own purge by Mao Zedong. So... Hu Yaobang crucially uh, died April 15th, 1989, and that was the galvanizing event for what would become the Tiananmen Square protests after having been purged in January 1987 for a long list of offenses if you're a, if, if you're a party conservative. Zhao Ziyang was sort of this wonderkind of, of the Communist Party, did not have the same level of credibility that Hu Yaobang did in terms of, of revolutionary cred, but was seen as an incredibly able technocrat. And so as Deng's coming to power, and again, think of this as a political maneuver of building a coalition, Zhao Ziyang is someone he has with him very early on in that brings him in as sort of this soon-to-be heir, at least for running the government, while he assumed Hu Yaobang would be running the Communist Party. And so for much of the 80s, um, going back to our narrative of Deng Xiaoping's role, really what Deng did is he essentially sat on top of, the, of, of this loose coalition and said to people like uh, Zhao Ziyang, I'm going to defer to you on some core economic issues until I think you've messed things up, and then I'll intervene. And it was the role of sort of these conservatives to always be saying he's messing it up, he's messing it up. Um, but Zhao Ziyang, more than more than really than anyone, was responsible for many of the the economic policies that we credit as being as a, as a core part of China's reform and opening. Um, he's premier until uh, until Hu Yaobang is ousted in 1987, and for a very brief two years, uh, he is the general secretary of the Communist Party. Uh, crucially is pushing the closest thing China has come to political reform. Uh, in 1987, calls for separating the, the party and the government, Dang Zhang Fengkai. 
um, saying the party, it's the, it's the owner of the restaurant. It can decide what's on the menu, but the government is the chef in the back kitchen. It's the one who's going to be actually making the dishes. We need to give them that latitude and, and uh, leeway to do that. This doesn't seem that odd to us, but this was this was and is today an incredibly radical suggestion uh, that Zhao Ziyang brought forth in 1987. It got uh, support from Deng Xiaoping, but the events of 1989 uh, forever uh, pulled that uh, reform of, of the party state plan off the table. And it was on uh, it was for his handling of 1989 uh, that uh, Zhao Ziyang was was ousted. So besides Zhao, I mean, there's a whole other sort of class of people who have been airbrushed out of the story. That class would be sort of foreign experts. What's your sense for how much it mattered that China sought out foreign expertise, both by dispatching you know, people to, to go abroad and to study not just sort of other relatively successful socialist countries like Hungary, but also uh, the United States, the UK, Germany, or West Germany back then, right? Yeah, here it's worth giving a shout out to, to Julian Gewurz for his really fantastic book called Unlikely Partners, which came it's out great. Yeah, great book. last year or the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, and annoyingly, it's based on his uh, Harvard undergraduate, his undergraduate thesis, thesis yeah. which still annoys me to no end. Because he's um, like 23. I mean, he's this wunderkind himself. right? But it tells, tells the story quite nicely of how important uh, foreign interaction was for China's reform and opening. And yes. this is not a knock on... Uh, the ability of of Chinese policymakers or or economists. It's just to say that as they emerge from uh, the cocoon of the Mao era and they look to build for the first time a well-functioning economy, there's a shortage of domestic ideas there. And so this included a a look outside of China, not only to the United States and to economists like James Tubin. This this was looking at uh, reforming socialist countries like like Hungary, like Romania. Crucially, this was looking in the initial phases to Japan. Yeah. Um, there was a famous trip Deng Xiaoping made in uh, I think October 1978 to Japan. He was accompanied by someone I think we'll talk about later, Deng Lichun, who who would become a, a an arch opponent of reform. But they were going to learn how do you manage enterprises? How do you give autonomy to firms without giving up total control? Um, How does a price mechanism work? We'd been operating in China under essentially state-determined prices, where a factory was given a price by the Central Planning Commission, and that's what you sold the thing for, irrespective of supply and demand. Uh, there was a feeling that that wasn't working, but how do we implement that? Is that a big bang strategy? Do we we introduce that gradually? And so you had a series of economists coming into China, uh, interacting with young, uh, um, young economists who were coming from, from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, for example. You had Chinese making study trips outside uh, to, to countries around the world. Crucially, you had the Soviet Union, which was a very important source of information uh, for China's reformers, both for good and, 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 and for, uh, for ill looking to how the Soviet Union, which during the 1980s under Gorbachev, starting after 1986, was going under much the same process. Mm. So if you look now, the Wilson Center has great archives on this, but also the CIA website has really wonderful declassified uh, reports from the 1980s where you can read about how Soviet advisors and Chinese advisors are looking at sort of the corner of their eye, looking at each other's systems to figure out what, what's working and what's not. And it creates a, a, an interesting feedback loop. Wow. Um, so in no way diminishing China's own role in 
in coming up with the policies that we think of as reform and opening, um, it's absolutely critical the role that outside interaction uh, played, again, providing positive lessons about how you reform a socialist economy, but, but also negative lessons as well about how, um, where reforms can go wrong and how political control can, can um, uh, sort of eviscerate. Right. Um, for much of the period from 1978, uh, at least for the next 30 years, the Chinese leadership seems to have decided to be a, a global rule taker, not a rule maker. Um, you know, the hide, hide your strength and bide your uh, time strategy. In the very early days, China was almost allied to the United States, at least vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Beijing was supplying arms to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and allowing American listening posts in Dongbei and in Xinjiang. How important was foreign policy orientation uh, that Deng pursued to making reform and opening up possible? It's a, it's a good question, and one that becomes, I think, it's crystallized as we look at what's happening in China today, and, and we see the erosion of that hide-and-bide strategy. And I think that, to me, crystallizes just how fundamentally important that more pragmatic foreign policy for much of the 80s and 90s was in facilitating China's ability to pursue a modernization agenda without getting itself into unnecessary fights. Now, it didn't always have a, uh, a quasi-pacifist uh, foreign policy. Uh, famously, in, in early 1979, Deng wages a, an unsuccessful war against Vietnam that really hurt him politically. But recognized- Hey, hey I, I have on good sources, China won that war. Okay, right, yeah, right. <laughs> But um, there is a very close alignment, or at least understanding, on Deng Xiaoping's part uh, uh, on how important it was to keep the U.S. on side, as it were. So uh, U.S.-China relations were normalized in, in 1979, and that's when Deng you know, uh, wore the famous cowboy hat. And I think he visited NASA, and there's this great quote. I think he says, it's the only country you can be an astronaut and a cowboy in, in a single day. Um, <laughs> but, you know... As, as we look at back at this foreign policy and see an accommodationist stance from China in many ways, especially towards the United States, we should recognize that this was not one based out of any sort of great affinity for the United States. This was based on what was going to give essentially China enough space to grow. And now we see that throughout the 80s and 90s, the party was still talking about the old paradigm of wealth and power. Really, the, the narrative of century of humiliation, of not getting bullied was always there. Um, it just came in a much more pragmatic face. And we, uh, I think in the West, especially the United States, were looking at what was happening in China's foreign policy and, and sort of jamming it into a narrative of the party moving away from Mao, moving away from ideology, moving away from communism. But it was, I think, in reality, a mixture of a cynical strategy of don't upset the United States. We need a, we have a lot we need to learn from the world. But crucially, that changes after 1989. Um, and those, Kaiser and I think Jeremy, were, were in, being in China in the 1990s, you saw a pretty marked shift, both in terms of how the U.S. looked at China and how China looked at the U.S. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, crucially, this was 1989 and the sanctions that the United States placed on on China for its uh, for its crackdown on, on the protesters on, on June 4th was, was a pivotal moment. And so, you know, having spent a lot of time interviewing nationalists in China, you find that this the sort of the idea that the moon is rounder in the United States or that the United States comes with a, a smile and a dagger behind its back becomes much more commonplace now. 
um, the United States begins selling more arms to Taiwan, despite a, an early 1980s agreement that it wouldn't. Crucially, you had uh, you had the uh, Taiwan Straits incident of 1995, 96, yeah. when the leader of Taiwan uh, gives a speech at Cornell University angering China, uh, and then the United States uh, sails a couple aircraft carriers through the Taiwan Straits to try to get China to back down from its bellicosity. And then you had the, the, the bombing of the Belgrade Embassy in, in 1999. So all these, I think, began to mark, in retrospect, a transition from China's initial foreign policy of, in Deng's formulation, hide and bide towards uh, a, a recognition or a belief now that's rippling through the system that the United States probably doesn't have our best interest at mind. And, and, and then on the last point is there's also just the natural transition of a, of a developing country to one becoming increasingly strong and articulating its own goals, which diverge from that of the United States or other other client states. And so this is a natural transformation that China began going through in, in the 1990s. We're seeing now the full force of it uh, coming out under Xi Jinping today. But I think the sort of the casting off of, of hide and bide, even as a cynical strategy, we can see in retrospect, it was actually a catastrophic mistake, I think, by Xi Jinping. Uh, going back now to the domestic front and specifically to the party and, and the composition of the party, uh, you'd mentioned a couple of times about how Hu Yaobang had been instrumental in, in bringing technocrats into to the technocratization of the party. This was something that Deng really went after full throttle. I mean, he specified that he wanted the Central Committee to be 80% college graduates, and he wanted, you know, so-and-so. And, I mean, this is something of an obsession of mine, but uh, this effort, I think, Jeremy, you've called it, you know, making giant China into a giant Singapore. Right? Mm. Uh, this is this is something that, that Deng quite deliberately undertook and was quite successful at, so that by the mid-'90s, my God, I mean, 75% of, of of party officials at the provincial or even the municipal level uh, were all, you know, holders of four-year degrees in, in natural sciences or in engineering. And even just two party congresses ago, every single one mm -hmm. of the members of the Politburo Standing Committee were all technocrats. This seems, strikes me as a big piece of Deng's legacy and, and a big piece of the success of reform and opening. Can you can you comment on that? Yeah, and, and it's one of these, um, as we talk about reform and opening, we typically focus on economic policy. Um, but I think crucially, it was the, the, the foundation for a lot of this was, a, was a reforms to the administrative system, which just aren't as sexy to talk about because the statistics, you don't get the mind-blowing ones like, like the ones you, you mentioned at the top of the show. But very crucially, Deng Xiaoping and Zhao Ziyang uh, made, made a, a clear conscious decision after they came to power, um, that none of this would work unless you had capable stewards of the reform agenda uh, who were in positions of power. Again, going back to the coalition issue, though, also, it was good politics because Deng Xiaoping was facing this backlash from elements within the system. A lot of them were carryovers from, from the, the sort of the Mao era. And so under the guise of revitalizing the, the administrative system and pushing people who were younger, uh, who are better educated, what that did in one fell swoop is, is begin to push out people who were what they call red versus expert, um, people who had loyalties that weren't to dung. Because when you move people out of a system, that means you get to replace with, with people you prefer. So that, that issue of uh, technocratizing uh, the Chinese administrative state was both a functional one of um, we can't do this unless we have people who understand economic policy and, and, and administrative policy. But it was also a political one, as it always is in China, um, hmm. of I need people who are loyal and supportive 
of me, and those are likely to be people I, I, I do an end run around the existing bureaucracy by bringing people who are younger and, and, and better educated. Oh, the same dynamic happens at every Chinese company when a new senior <laughs> manager comes on board. Um, let us now talk about one of your favorite subjects, the conservative opposition to reform and opening. Can you introduce us to the major figures uh, in the conservative reaction? Jude, Jude by the way, is, has uh, a book that's coming out when? Next year? June, June 1st. June, in June. Uh, You've which been is- promising it for... Seven years, but no, 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 not seven years. <laughs> it's great. I mean, I've read a couple of chapters of it. It's 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 a terrific book, and uh, that's what it's about. So take it away. The conservative reaction. Um, yeah, well, well, one of my favorite subjects. The 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 book that I just finished is on today's what we call neo Maoists. So sort of le- leftists who are pushing for a return to state control uh, and a more a, a more a redder ideology in, in the Communist Party. And as I began to research today's neo Maoists, I wanted to understand what their pedigree was and, and where they came from. And as I pulled the thread on them, it gets you back to the very starts of reform and opening. Mm-hmm. And in, in Jul- I think it's July 79, Dung gives this speech where he says, there are those who hold up the banner of Mao Zedong to oppose our reform and opening. Essentially, there are those that under the guise of of fealty to Mao Zedong or fealty to communist ideology are actually opponents of our reform agenda. And so if we start at, at that third plenum in 1978, I think it's fair to say most people were what we could call reformers in the sense that most people wanted to move away from what they thought were the bankrupt policies of the last 10 years. Everyone was looking to modernize. What we saw emerge as a conservative and reformer split is really just a debate about what sort of modernization are we going to have. Um, and so folks who would soon become the stalwarts of, of conservative opposition, these are people like Chun Yun, these are people like Deng Li Chun, people like Hu Mu, who I'll introduce in a second, started out as allies of Deng Xiaoping's. But as the reform agenda began to pick up speed, and as you began to see some problems in the reform agenda, a new loose coalition begins to form that is always there sort of pushing back, sometimes with great vehemence, sometimes a little bit more softly, sometimes picking up the stick of ideology and threatening of spiritual pollution infiltrating China, sometimes using the, the cudgel of corruption, uh, of economic crimes, which reform and opening is unleashing. And we've got to tap down, we've got to you know, crack down on corruption. Really what they're trying to do is push back against the reform agenda. Right. And so going back to our initial, f- much more flatter narrative of reform and opening, what it misses is throughout the 1980s, you have this great volatility in the reform agenda where it's two steps forward, one step back, two steps back, one step forward. On the whole, by the time you get to, let's say 1989, the reform agenda has 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 won in the sense that China is a much different place by June 3rd, 1989 than it was in 1976. And it's, it's undeniable if you were to walk around the streets then that great progress has been made. But it wasn't quite the progress that the outside world was describing it as. And it airbrushed out the great vehement political struggles that were happening in China. So I just wrote down a sort of an archi- archetype of sort of the four categories of these conservatives you saw. You saw people who were sort of on the economic, the sort of economic thinking realm. So people like Chun Yun, who had been a, a central planner uh, in the 1950s under Mao Zedong until he was, was, was purged, comes back to power with, with Deng Xiaoping's uh, help in 1978 and, and is 
calling for a, a, a balanced approach to reform and opening. He didn't want anything that was too fast that was potentially going to spin out of control. And famously, he described China's economy as, as a birdcage, where he essentially said, the market economy is a, is a bird. If you have no bars and you just let it fly, it'll fly away. If you hold it in your hand and you hold it too tightly, you'll kill it. So you need to take it and you need to put it within the iron confines of a cage. And the party or the, the central planners are there to adjust the cage. You can expand it, you can shrink it, but it always has to have bars there. My father used to say the same thing about parenting. And look what it produced. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, had, you had what we can call the ideologues, or, the, or the, the, these are people who firmly believed in communist ideology or the ideology of control and mm -hmm. saw reform and opening as, as threatening to traditional ideas, which had done China pretty well, in their opinion, uh, on the whole and that the party cannot diverge too greatly from its, its red legacy, so to speak. You had folks in the military mm -hmm. um, who saw reform and opening as, as fundamentally threatening in several ways. One is, it was just a lot harder to get troops. Everyone was going out and joining the private economy or going out to find ways that they could do something new rather than uh, coming into the military. And these are people who just were much more hardline in their ideology, who saw reform and opening as softening China rather than strengthening it. Later, as it turns out, joining the military was the best way to make a ton of money as an entrepreneur. And then the last category, I'd say these are people in the party apparatus, right? So these are people in the bureaucracies who, over a lot of the Mao era, had been granted a significant amount of power both in terms of their ability to gain and to distribute rents, uh, but also just their positions in society have been solidified in, in a bureaucracy. And so reform, i.e. taking power in many ways away from the state and the government and distributing it back into society, was fundamentally threatening to these individuals. So we call them conservatives for shorthand. It never was a, a solidified, identifiable group. That It was a, a loose coalition. But what it does is I think it helps us understand that there was significant pushback from the moment reforms were, were announced and, and were there and are there still, still today. Can I ask you for just one little potted biography for poor Hua Guofeng, who gets ignored by history? What was his role <laughs> in this? Um, oh, good old Hua Guofeng. Yeah, moving, moving. So Hua Guofeng, in the, the short version is uh, Hua Guofeng was the guy who, who Mao Zedong said, um, uh, with you in charge, I'm at ease. Um, he was the one that Mao brought up from Hunan province, where, where Hua Guofeng was a young portly party official who was overseeing um, Xiangtan, which is where Mao's hometown, Shaoshan, is, is located. Mao had visited, uh, I think in 58, right before the Lushan conference, and had seen Hua Guofeng in action and had been impressed. Um, Wasn't he running like a factory making Mao pins? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the story is that, that this factory uh, down there uh, produced 50 million Mao pins in one, one year, I think, which just sort of blew the tops of, of, of party officials back in Beijing. And for Mao, signal that this is a guy I can work with. So when Trump picks a running mate in 2020, it's going to be a guy who runs a MAGA hat factory. Uh, Hua Guofeng comes into Beijing when Zhou Enlai, the, the well-respected, revered premier, uh, gets sick in 1975 and, and is very quickly moved into some pretty key positions in power uh, in Beijing. And it becomes clear that he's being groomed for a possible leadership position in, in potential conflict with Mao's wife, Zhang Qing, and, and the, uh, the other three members of the Gang of Four. 
as Mao's dying now uh, in 1976, he supposedly writes this note, this, this handwritten note that, that says, you're going to take over the mantle of, of power. In retrospect, we really gloss over Hua Guofeng's role because by 1978, so just within a year and a half of Mao's death, it's pretty clear Deng Xiaoping is in power. But what I think we miss about Hua Guofeng, um, I, sh I should finish that story. Deng essentially boots him out of power. By 1981, he's doesn't have any offices. He stays in the Central Committee till quite recently, 2002, but is completely out of the political wow. scene and then dies in, 19, in 2008. Wow, um, I had no idea he was around that long. So he just, he was parked in the Central Committee, um, um, but after, after 81 and certainly after, but, but really after 78, he had no power. But what I think is important about Hua Guofeng is um, as a transition figure. So when we go back to this idea that, that, Nobody was running away from Mao Zedong when he died, political leaders. They were all trying to say, we're actually the, the real stewards of Mao's legacy. Hua Guofeng was, a, I think, an important transition figure because if Deng had come to power much earlier, I think it would have opened up a lot of antagonism within the system. Um, and you would have, China already at that period was on the edge of martial law was put into place after Mao died. Um, you had the Gang of Four, which until they were arrested, there was concerns about a possible coup. Um, so there's rippling uncertainty that you would expect after a dictator of Mao Zedong's position suddenly, you know, is dead. And now all of a sudden, all the old frictions within the system are finally able to sort of release. Tectonic plates, I guess, is the better analogy. Hua is safe. He didn't threaten anybody. It provides this sort of transition period as Deng and his allies can get into place and make a more a, a smoother, gradual transition of power. The crucial thing that happened when, when Deng sidelined Hua Guofeng is, Hua Guofeng didn't go to jail. He wasn't purged. He was quietly moved to the side. And what that did is that signaled to everybody else that the politics of zero, you know, zero sum, winner take all that had typified the Mao era were beginning to change. And there was a new political calculus. And don't worry that your position in power or the loss of it won't result in your, your jailing. No longer a blood sport. Exactly. Right, 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 right. So, so we, we don't think much of Hua Guofeng, but I suspect some promising young PhD student will do a great revisionist history of just how important he was at that moment, at that time, of helping China transition peacefully from the Mao era, which was not typified by peace, um, to, to Deng taking power. Jude, when people talk about the reform and opening period, often you'll hear people say, uh, how China or the Chinese Communist Party lifted X hundred million people out of poverty. But you're going to hear other people who are going to push back against that say, no, 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 that doesn't give the Chinese people the agency they deserve. It was actually, it was just the party getting out of the way and allowing the entrepreneurial energies of, of the Chinese people to lift themselves out of poverty. Neither formulation strikes me as very satisfactory because, you know, that second one denies the, there were some wise decisions were made. There was some sort of force, you know, quite foresighted uh, infrastructure investment, and there was some risk taking involved, mm -hmm. and and you know a provision of of, of stability. Well, how do you formulate this when you when you talk about what's about poverty in China? Actually, no, no better than you just did, because I, I agree that both the, the the prior formulation is infuriating, in in that clearly it was an explosion of entrepreneurial activity by Chinese people, which was primarily responsible for, for moving from the, the, the ashes of, of the Mao planned economy. But at the same time, it wasn't as if there wasn't a, a system in place or at least a framework for uh, or, or institutions that were allowing for uh, a lot of this activity. So I, I don't have a really- a, You know a, a good shorthand? I don't have a good short, shorthand, but it's, it's it. the only country we use that phrasing for. 
which I find odd. We don't talk about other growth miracles um, by saying, you know, the Singaporean government lifted uh, out of poverty. So it's a really inept uh, metaphor, I think, in many ways, which mm. which which doesn't capture uh, the complexity of it. The problem with complex situations is they can never usually be boiled down into to a, bumper, a bumper sticker like. Mm. So here's another bumper sticker-like thing that Kaiser and I have discussed in the past. The, 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 there's a, a sort of staple concept in Western reporting on China that the Chinese people have made a bargain with the Communist Party that in, in, in oh, return yeah. for being allowed to get rich, they'll stay out of politics. What's your take on that? You yeah, that, like that, that one infuriates me even more than the lifting <laughs> out of poverty. Um, it's a very odd sort of bargain. Because if you look at, and I'm sure we've all have friends who, you know, you look at the people who run Unirule, Mao Yushur, for example, or my old friends, uh, uh, you know, who used to run Transition Institute, or uh, folks like Yan Jiaqi, or you name them, who have con consistently articulated a vision of a public participation in China's political system. It wasn't as if they accepted a bargain. It was that a threat of violence was put in place that this is not a, this is not a conversation you can be a part of. And, it, and it, it's, we wouldn't say, for example, that I've entered into a bargain with, with the mugger. <laughs> yeah, with the U.S. government that, you, you know, you don't murder somebody and you can walk around, walk around free. That'd be a, that, those are sort of an odd way to formulate it. Um, so to me, it's, and we're seeing this crystallized under Xi Jinping, it's, it's the threat of violence um, that exemplifies why there is a, a lack of public participation because you see consistently, whether it's the formation of the Democratic, you know, the Democracy Party in the late 19. Uh, 1990s, whether it's the neo-Maoists who I who I look at quite closely. Um, these are people who have refused to accept the bargain and have consistently be trying to, been trying to butt their way into uh, the political dis discussion. The success of that or the, the strength of the bargain is is based on how much violence that the party wants to bring bring down on people. So no bargain, just the barrel of a gun. <laughs> yeah. It's um, called another, making you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, okay. Another question um, I'd like to ask. China received a lot of foreign direct investment, and for many years uh, running, it was the largest recipient of FDI of any country in the world. Um, but I think one fact that people don't often think about is that a lot of this FDI was actually from the Chinese diaspora, oh, yeah. uh, from Hong Kong, and especially Taiwan. Can you talk about the importance of this diaspora investment? I mean, is that unusual for a, a country? I mean, does that happen? I mean, did that happen for, say, Turkey or did that, for Brazil? Or yeah, so remittances is a more common story of sort of developing economies as people as as people but move it's a out. Different they, thing, they, right? They, right. So remittance is just a sort of direct you send money back 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 home. But yeah, I think um, you know another crucial element of of you know sort of foreign participation in the sense of. The way that interacting with the outside world was crucial to China's rise and, and, and ongoing development was this amazing, unique, unparalleled diaspora um, around Southeast Asia to the United States, to Canada. Um, also, the interactions with Taiwan, um, which provided crucial, crucial capital investment technology and skill sets that were feeding back into China. It's one of the, the narratives now in, in sort of Xi Jinping's buy our own bootstraps, Zili Gongsheng, you know, we, we do it all on our own, which is being stripped out of the reform and opening. But, but foreign countries as platforms for Chinese people to go abroad, do astoundingly well, and then bring that investment back, uh, back into China. Um, the diaspora function of it is talked about, but the role that sort of foreign economies played in hosting the diaspora, I think, is, is minimized now, but absolutely, you know, crucial. Jeremy, I understand you were writing a chapter about Jiang Zemin 
in for for what? I, I well, writing is a, a rather um, it's not for what the it's right word. I I will. I have committed will to write. Committed to write. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, John Levine is sort of. A, I mean, that's a, a time. Of course, he had this very beloved uh, premiere. Of course, Zhu Rongzi, uh, and I. I my sense is always that a lot of the really important things that happened uh, in China's rise happened on his watch mm-hmm. and. I would, I would I would say three things. Obviously, you know things like China joining the WTO. We don't really need to talk about that. But two of the other things recently, it struck me as odd because a, a lot of people uh, were were surprised when they read that uh, some of China's leading internet entrepreneurs like Jack Ma, Robin Lee, uh, and Pony Ma, it turns out they're all party members. And I saw a lot of news pieces written about that, but without reference to Jiang Zemin's theoretical contribution to Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong thought, which is, of course, the three represents theory, this idea of bringing the most advanced forces of production and the most advanced cultural forces into the party, which means capitalists, basically. Uh, that was one of them. And the, another one that I thought seemed uh, maybe to be slightly overlooked, people don't talk about this stuff. I mean, to me, that moment, we, we talked about this earlier, when, when suddenly all... We were all poor, and our our Chinese friends were rich. It was because they all, all their parents, especially, had gotten their Danway housing for a song, and they were able to flip it a couple of times. And so they had created in 1999. They privatized the the, the yeah. By 2001, we were the poor ones. In exactly Beijing. right. Right. It took three years. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I'm still bitter about not having <laughs> had that happen to me. Jude, so what do you? What do you uh, what, uh, these are a couple of um, major, maybe overlooked pieces. I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll, the the three represents particularly um, at the time when this came out. This was seen in the foreign press as a victory for capitalism, right? And you can see how that narrative would have worked at the time. China joined the WTO in in, in December two thousand and one, or acceded to the WTO in December two thousand and one. You have the you know the internet is moving into China, which Bill Clinton famously said is like trying to control the internet is like trying to nail Jello to a wall. And good luck if China wants to try to control it. Um, you had, you know, you had now Chinese students who were coming out of China. You had this influx of FDI from, especially from from the U.S. That narrative fit when suddenly Jiang Zemin announces um, that they're going to be allowing uh, a capitalist to join the party, which was, um, you know, seen as anathema to traditional, you know, heter- orthodox uh, ideology. At the time, I think, um, or I should say, looking back. What we now see is that was quite a savvy move to, in a sense, co-opt or begin building uh, connections between what, what they saw was inevitable, which was the growth of the private sector. That's not going away. China needs that. So the party has one or two ways that it can deal with that. It can stay on, the, on its back heels and essentially allow the party to outgrow it, or it can find a ways to make connections into the party with an attempt to co-opt, control, or, or assimilate. And, and we're seeing now, I think, the, the, the apotheosis of that where we have, you know, China's most uh, influential, successful entrepreneurs who, uh, yeah, are, 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 are communists uh, or Communist Party members, I, I, I should say. Um, but that's one of the, the ways in which our framework at the time didn't see or wasn't listening to what the party was saying in 2001, um, which was, or sorry, 2003. When did the three represents? 2003, 2003 yeah. Which was this is because we want to no, two, assimilate. Two thousand one. We want to we want to integrate with and assimilate with the the, the the private sector. 
but we interpret it as the the party is essentially laying down its right. you know is it's folding over. Got it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> got that one completely wrong. Why is Xi Jinping apparently pushing Deng to the margins of the story of reform and opening up? And I base this on a number of exhibitions recently in Beijing. Uh, your colleague uh, um, Julian Gerwitz was tweeting from an exhibition at the National Museum in Beijing on the 40 years of reform and opening up, and Deng is sidelined. Yeah. Why? Yeah. In one way, it's it's not unusual insofar as when any new leader comes into to power, uh, you begin by rewriting history to put yourself at the at the center of it, unless you need your predecessor, right? So uh, Hua Guofeng needed Mao Zedong because without Mao, he, he was nobody. Um, Jiang Zemin, similarly, when he comes into power, he's Deng. thrust into power in 1989. He's pulled up from, from Shanghai, was not on anybody's radar screen necessarily, but Deng says, this is our guy. So for the first couple of years, Jiang Zemin is hewing quite closely to Deng and Doug's legacy. When it becomes clear that Deng is, by, by mid-90s, especially after the Southern Tour, that, that Deng is what, what, the, what they call going to see Marx, as in he's going to die, um, Jiang Zemin starts asserting himself more forcefully and begins rewriting the narrative to where he's much more central in this. So in one way, this is normal. That being said, it's extraordinary to watch how quickly the key architect of reform, where again, if we were to just rewind three or four years ago, and if we were to watch uh, party documentaries on, on reform and opening, Deng Xiaoping would be at the center of it, right? Um, how absent he is. I guess is because again, I like probably everyone here have no idea what actually happens in in uh, in, in Xi Jinping's mind or in Beijing. Um, Deng's legacy is in many ways anathema to Xi Jinping's legacy. That if you think about many of the key elements beyond this sort of superficial thing of yeah, they both want the party to to succeed, right? Um, but in terms of key aspects of uh, a, a more pragmatic policy about opening up and integrating into the world about a, a legacy of um, standing. So she, Deng Xiaoping was never a, I'm gonna stick my finger in every pie, control everything sort of leader. Right. Very hands off, only intervened when he had to, when there wasn't a consensus between various coalitions. If things were moving well, he was happy to, to stand out of the way. He was also happy to allow China to quietly grow stronger and richer without feeling the need to say, look at us, look at us. On things like administrative reform we were talking about earlier, um, August 18th, 1980, Deng Xiaoping gives what to me is his best speech, where he says there are four issues that the party is facing right now. The top leader holds too many concurrent positions, doing too many things. We haven't solved the succession issue, i.e. we've got the top leader just wants to stay in power forever. Um, the the um, Now I'm going to forget all four. Um, the party is doing too much. It's butting into the way of, of, of the government. And I'm going to forget the fourth one, of course. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so Deng's legacy of move the party out of the way, keep it in its political box, but allow the government to do its own thing, integrate with the outside world in a pragmatic way that recognizes the risks, but also, also the benefits, have a foreign policy which is subdued and smart and recognizes tactical moments to intervene, but tactical moments to stay back because peace is good for us. And as long as we're benefiting from the global order, we don't need to stand up and, and provoke concerns from outside countries about, about China's rise. And crucially, we're never going to have a cult of leadership again, because that's going to take us back to the Mao era. I see where you're going with this, because Xi Jinping has been exactly the opposite on, of, on each of these Of, of all right. those things. Right. So right. the one commonality is both believed 
the party was the central institution. Deng believed that. Xi Jinping sure, believed sure, sure. that. But that doesn't explain the differences here. I, every every general secretary of the Communist Party thinks the Communist Party is fundamentally important. Hu Yaobang thought that. Of course that. so. Well, you know, that, that's... Jiang Zemin thought that. So that doesn't describe the difference. This is a fundamental difference about how China should engage with the world and how China should be governed. And as long as Deng Xiaoping and his legacy is around, that's a cudgel that opponents can pick up. So Deng's 1980, uh, that August 18th speech, which I just misremembered, that speech in and of itself is a challenge to Xi Jinping. Right. The, the reform and opening the 40th anniversary is a potential moment for a coalescence of, of opposition to Deng Xiaoping. Right. So the more you allow the speeches of Hu Yaobang and Zhao Ziyang and, and, and Deng Xiaoping, speeches from Zhao Ziyang on political reform, speeches from Deng Xiaoping on separating the party and the government, basically just Deng Xiaoping on we're not going to have a cult of leadership and how disastrous that is. Um, those are political weapons. And so clear them all away, get rid of them, burn the books. It's a very satisfying explanation for that, Jude. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, Jude, finally, is the era of reform and opening over? And if it is, when when do you mark time of death? Um, yes, it's over in the sense that every epoch has its, it fades out, it ends, it evolves, it shifts, and you enter a new, what, what I and Xi Jinping like to call a new era. Um, <laughs> clearly, we're not, in the same development trajectory that we have been for China for, for most of the past 40 years. We're not talking about the same issues. China isn't facing the same contradictions or, or problems. Um, the world is much different. So this idea of the ongoing reform and opening, I think, is a paradigm to explain where China is, is not helpful anymore. Helpfully, Xi Jinping has also said that and has said we're in a new era. So on the one hand, trying to hew to the continuity of from uh, Mao to Deng to Xi Jinping, skipping everybody in between. But, but on the same hand, I think Xi is clearly trying to articulate that this is, we're looking to the future, new challenges, new problems, and therefore a uh, new type of political leadership to, to face those. So Second, November, November 2017 then is the, the end? Uh, of, of 2012? No, uh, twenty seventeen. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, twenty twelve. I mean, maybe twenty twelve. But I think uh, I don't think there's one the moment. New era. Those removing the, the term limits and right. using the terminology "new era." I think we can say nineteenth party congress through to the MPC meeting uh, of where of we March had this sort of or yeah. where we had this sort of one-two punch of uh, I am the dominant figure and I don't believe in any collective uh, collective leadership. And uh, I'm going to stay in power for life, which he intends to do, I will predict right now. Hey, um, it's a tradition on the show. I predicted it back in 2012. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and the other thing is, as long as the reform, so the party will never outright abandon it because it's quite lucrative. As long as you say we're opening for business, it's reform and opening, that, that's, that's uh, music to the ears of, of a lot of global capitalists. Um, so that will never go away. But if we're trying to think of how, what, what is a heuristic for understanding China and where it's going, reform and opening should be abandoned. Well, Jude, I can't not I can't tell you how delighted we are to have had you you know come all the way up from from DC for this. Um, um, we're we're thrilled that you could join us. Um, but before we pack up here, we have our recommendations section to get to. And before we get there, I do want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina. Make sure to sign up for SubChina's premium access membership where you're going to get all sorts of extras. You get newsletters, you get discounted or free admission to our numerous events. And 
an ad-free early version of this very podcast. Uh, so do check out some of the other shows in our growing network, the Seneca Network. We've got the Taishin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and Ta for Ta, both shows about women in China. And China Econ Talk, which is just really going from strength to strength. It's a very good show. Uh, even more are in the works, so watch this space. Now, on to recommendations. Jeremy, you may begin. Okay, I've got something, some very cheerful reading for anyone who needs cheering up. It's called One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps <laughs> by Andrea Pitzer. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about concentration camps yeah, because of what's going on in, in Xinjiang. Xinjiang yeah, of course. This is a really, really excellent history of concentration camps and sadly makes it very clear that concentration camps are, in fact, the correct word for what's happening in Xinjiang. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, you finished the book or you're reading it now? Or um, I've got right? about 20 pages left. Oh, wow. Well, uh-huh. well, it it covers out. all the major global concentration camp hits. Oh, all the greatest hits of time. <laughs> all right, Jude, what do you have for us? Well, I wish I'd gone before Jeremy because it's a bit hard to give a recommendation after that. Um, but I will recommend uh, this amazing documentary, which many of you have probably seen, called Free Solo, which is about oh, wow, Alex yeah. Honnold who uh, free climbs. He doesn't use any any ropes, any safety um, equipment whatsoever. Uh, extraordinary figure uh, who recently f- uh, free climbed El Capitan in Yosemite. Oh, God. Um, if you, like me, always struggle with the question of what am I doing wasting my life in this, you know, with whatever I'm doing as a career, this won't help you because it really just got uh, my wife and I just walking out very discouraged about uh, ourselves and what we're capable of because this guy <laughs> is so extraordinary uh, and I think crystallizes with just rock climbing with no safety equipment is a really great visual metaphor for just the absolute envelope of what a human being uh, can do. So it's an extraordinary movie. It's really inspiring. It's depressing at the same time for me because uh, I sit at a desk all day and type emails, but uh, nonetheless really uh, recommend highly uh, that, that everyone see it. Oh, wow. Good, good recommendation. Uh, my recommendation is Jill Lepore's new book. Uh, it's called These Truths, A History of the United States. Jill Lepore, uh, you probably know her as a staff writer for The New Yorker. She's just a fantastically good writer. Uh, but she's also a, a an historian, a pr- professor of history at Harvard. And as somebody who likes journalists and likes historians a lot, I mean, it's, it's, she, she has, you know, the, the, that wonderful writing ability, which of course makes her just um, such a, a lovely presence in the New Yorker, but it's it's outstanding history. I'm um, right now. I'm in the temperance movement. I'm moving through this. It's it's. I don't know if you've read like Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. It, it's it's. There, there's some resemblance, but I think her prose is just a lot more. I mean, there's a lot more levity in her prose. She's actually quite funny and turns a, a great phrase. So, highly recommend this book. I'm uh, probably going to finish it this week. Well, once again, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, let's hear it for for Jude Blanchett. All right. The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SupChina. Drop us an email at at Seneca at SupChina.com or leave us a positive review on the iTunes store. Do whatever you want to support us. You know, uh, sign up for our free email newsletter or better yet, sign up for our our paid access service. And uh, we will uh, see you all next week. All right. Take care.